It's one of my most anticipated smartphone reviews of the year, or at least it was until this past Thursday, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But for today, it is our review of the Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition, and there is a lot of phone here for a fairly small price. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and we are in the midst of a plethora of phone reviews. People like to call it Techtober, but on this podcast, it's more like Mobilevember, am I right? And if you didn't like that joke, it was my wife's. But seriously, we've got seven phone reviews coming up over a span of nine episodes, which is just crazy. And I got to say, for as long as I've been doing this professionally, I have wanted to be that guy who tests all the awesome phones. And you know what? I'm still not that guy. Sure, I do get tossed a cookie every now and then, but compared to the Michael Fishers and the Marquez Brownleys and the Jaime Rivera's and the Dave Kogan's of the world... I can't even sniff the number of phones that those guys get, and if this past month has taught me anything, it's that burnout is real. I'm not there yet, I'm not even close to there, but sheesh, these phone reviews are a lot of work, and I'm just going to shut up right now because it sounds like I'm complaining, and I promise you I'm not complaining, and this is one hell of a run-on sentence, so let's just go ahead and move on to the news of the week. One quick note in terms of the upcoming calendar for your you review questions, because we've got a boatload of reviews still to come. First up, next week we have the Moto Edge Not Plus, followed by the TCL 5G. After that comes the iPhone 12 Pro, and then I'm taking a week off and running an interview that I did on cryptocurrency. That week is Thanksgiving, so frankly... I need a breather. Following that, we'll have the LG Wing, which just arrived in our labs this week, and I may have a couple of laptops in November and December coming as well, so stay tuned for those. Plus, I have a plethora of smaller reviews to do, including an 8-inch Lenovo tablet, an 8-inch TCL tablet, the Lenovo Smart Clock Essential, and more. So it's going to be a busy review season right up until the end of the year. So keep those questions coming in, and now, the news. Our first story of the week comes from Microsoft, and you'll have to excuse me, I don't speak Minecraft, but starting in 2021, all players of Minecraft will be required to have Microsoft accounts. Currently, players playing the Java edition of Minecraft with a Mojang account have sidestepped this particular rule, but beginning in 2021, no mas. Microsoft claims that the change will be better for parents and kids because parents will be able to institute rules for their kids, like limitations or chat blocks. Okay, so it's really just better for parents, and I can get on board that train, but people are kind of freaking out a little because this basically requires everyone to have Microsoft accounts, and what if they don't want one? It's a fair question, and one that I've been asking of Google since around 2010 or so. Of course, this has people wondering how long it'll be before Microsoft starts requiring Microsoft accounts to play any of the games they now own, like um, the Bethesda titles, for example, that they bought a few weeks ago. Microsoft's theory is that people will create Microsoft accounts, and then they'll just start using Microsoft stuff like Outlook and Office and Bing, and just hope that none of those players start using something like Google Services, which has better alternatives to things like Outlook and Office and Bing. Good luck with that, Microsoft. I hope pissed-off Java players are worth it. 
But not everything is a killer bullet these days. We dodged a pretty big bullet from Facebook this week. Facebook, the crappy company run by terrible people, made an oopsie last weekend when its official support Twitter account said that using the same Facebook account on multiple Oculus headsets at the same time violated Facebook's terms of service and will result in an account ban. Then, at the end of the weekend, Facebook released a clarification saying, Whoopsie, sorry about panicking you all out there. Don't worry, you're good. This becomes especially problematic for the Oculus Quest 2 owners because Facebook now requires a Facebook account to even use the device, and if people are getting banned, then people aren't VRing, you know? Fortunately, this turned out to be a red herring, but it was enough to make Twitter freak out a little bit there, so I felt it was worth sharing. But one other thing turned out not to be a red herring. If you delete your Facebook account, that will also wipe out all of your Oculus purchases and credits. Now, this isn't particularly surprising, especially since as of this month, you need a valid Facebook account to set up an Oculus headset. But it's still pretty harsh, bro. Of course, you can always be like me and just have a Facebook account and not use it. Seriously, this year I've commented on one of my wife's Facebook posts, and that is the sum total of my Facebook activity all year. I haven't even had the app installed since May. It's a wonderful feeling not having to deal with racist uncles, conspiracy theories, and conspiracy theories about racist uncles. And speaking of wiping out your content, Amazon stated in a lawsuit this week that the content you buy from Amazon, namely movies and books, are not yours per se. You're not actually buying the book or the movie. You are buying a license to consume that content for an indefinite amount of time. And by indefinite, we don't mean forever. We simply mean we haven't actually given it an expiration date yet. But the fact of the matter is, when you buy a digital item, which is pretty much all I've done for the last six years or so, you don't actually own that material, and at some point in the far distant future, or possibly next week, you may lose the licenses to consume that material. Often that happens when a licensing deal expires or something like that. Now, as for Amazon getting sued over this... Yeah, I can kind of see the plaintiff's point. It's not like Amazon's button says, rent this indefinitely. It says, buy. And buying implies a certain amount of ownership, and that's just confusing. Just because I knew about it four or five years ago doesn't make it common knowledge. So yeah, I think Amazon should lose that lawsuit and be required to put a disclaimer on all the content it, air quotes, sells to help assuage the confusion. It won't, but it should. Samsung is making its own camera sensors. Well, that's not weird. What is weird is that up until now, Samsung had not made its own low-end camera sensors for phones like the A series of phones. So now Samsung will, and Sam Mobile is not taking a positive interpretation here. Not for nothing, it's not awesome for Samsung to be moving in on the low-end phone market. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not awesome for the bottom line. The thing that makes budget phones budget is the fact that they don't have a high profit margin, or sometimes not even any profit margin. So if Samsung is making and selling low-end cameras with low-end profit margins, then that means at least some of its energy is being directed away from, you know, high-end cameras and high profit margins. So like I said, it's overall not very awesome. Now, personally, I just think this makes sense. Samsung making Samsung cameras in low, middle, and high-end. 
The less you have to pay to outside companies, the better. Though in this particular case, I should point out that this is one division of Samsung selling to another division of Samsung, and Samsung is so insanely huge that money is actually going to change hands, and, you know, follow-up emails will be sent if Samsung stiffs Samsung on the bill. Samsung is going to sue Samsung, and yeah, that is a thing that might actually happen, which honestly just makes this whole situation that much more delightful. This week, T-Mobile had an uncarrier event in which it declared that it is now taking on cable companies just like it does with carriers. T-Mobile rolled out T-Vision, which is a streaming service that comes in three parts. The first part is called T-Vision Live, which is a $40 per month package of live news and sports. Well, some sports. Anyway, it doesn't look like the Cubs marquee network is on the menu. The second package is called T-Vision Vibe. Yes, seriously, Vibe. And it's going to have around 30 channels of TV, including AMC and True TV, for $10 per month. Finally, T-Vision will have channels, air quotes, which will give you access to subscription channels like Showtime and Stars, but, you know, T-Mobile will bill you for them. The service slow roll launches over the next few months, first to T-Mobile subscribers and then to others. Personally, I'm not a damn bit interested in this. Like I said, live doesn't cover the Cubs, so screw that, and the Blackhawks are so crappy right now that they're probably not worth $40 per month. Vibe is only live TV, and DVR costs an extra $5 per month. DVR. Seriously, in 2020. And it's only 100 hours, which is just gross. Like, on demand or bust, bro. 100 hours? Sure. And what am I supposed to use after the second week? Plus, $40 per month is a nice price for live stuff, and even 50 or 70 channels is nice, but CEO Mike Siebert spent most of the presentation talking about how it's ridiculous that cable companies charge so much for big bundles of channels that you don't watch. And then he puts out plans with channels that people won't watch. T-Mobile had the opportunity to release a much more a la carte plan, which sure, it isn't really financially feasible, but neither were most of T-Mobile's early uncarrier moves. T-Mobile, if you want to move the needle, you got to be revolutionary. And quite frankly, for the past few years, most of T-Mobile's, air quotes, uncarrier events have been seriously unimpressive. This time they released Sling, basically. And if other cable packages are any indication, T-Vision won't stay cheap for long. YouTube TV started at $40 per month, and now it's up to $65. So get with it, T-Mobile. If you want to be a subscription live TV service, then be that. But don't pretend that you're being revolutionary. Remember last week when I talked about a new phone that I wasn't allowed to talk about yet? Well, I can talk about that phone now, and it's the TCL 10 5G UW. This is the third TCL smartphone we've seen this year, and it's the third smartphone I'll be reviewing from them. The phone is in our labs and ready to go. The design is absolutely gorgeous. By the time you hear this, I'll have already posted a TikTok video on it, so go check that out. Oh, and you can see the back of the phone on the YouTube unboxing that I did as well. And yeah, that's right, I have a YouTube channel now. Huh. 
Getting back to the phone, what's interesting about this is that the phone matches the Pixel 4a 5G with a Snapdragon 765S processor, 128GB of storage, 6GB of RAM, and Verizon's millimeter wave tech. This phone is a Verizon exclusive BT dubs, which honestly kind of surprised me. But anyway, there doesn't seem to be a millimeter wave Verizon stupid tax on this phone, which is refreshing to say the least. This phone inspired a video idea that you'll see sometime in the next few weeks, which is going to be fun, but very long and hard to make. Anyway, the phone is priced at $399, making it the same price as the T-Mobile Rebel 5G, which is also made by TCL, so that's nice. We'll get more into the phone in a few weeks when I do the full review, but I've been playing with it for a bit, and so far, it's pretty good. But it's not the cheapest 5G phone you can get anymore because this week also saw the launch of the LG K92, which is an AT&T exclusive mid-range 5G phone priced at just $394.99, making it five buckaroos cheaper than both the Rebel 5G and the aforementioned TCL10 5G UW. This phone packs a Snapdragon 690 processor, 128 gigabytes of storage, and 6 gigabytes of RAM, and an unusual quad camera design on the back that I'm kind of interested in it. You kind of have to see it, so check out the link in the show notes to see what I'm talking about. LG is no stranger to the mid-range phone market. It's true, the LG phones that I've reviewed this year skew more toward the high end, but I don't think this one is coming to me for review unless my LG guy was just being coy. But what did come to me was the LG Wing, and I'm super stoked about that. That's right, it arrived the same day that this phone launched. There will be an unboxing for it, probably Monday or Tuesday, so be sure to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, what's really cool about all of this is that all three major U.S. carriers now have budget 5G smartphones, so this is not just a flagship thing, and hopefully it'll prompt more network build-out so 5G can actually be more of a thing. Apple is a large part of Google's revenue every year. That's because Google Search is baked into Apple devices, and sure, Google pays for the privilege, but let's face it, who else was Apple going to use? Anyway, the iPhone 12 seems to be returning some search results that are not necessarily coming from Google, indicating that Apple may be looking for an alternative and actually developing its own search. And that's an interesting development. We'll have to see where it ends up. It's not like early versions of Apple Maps stranded people in the middle of a desert or anything. Oh, it did? Huh. Well, good luck, Apple. Respectfully, may I suggest that you stop trying to fix search and just work on Siri, because all this time later, Siri is still god-awful. Oh, and stay tuned for our iPhone 12 Pro review coming in a few weeks, which I'm sure is going to be just dandy. 2020 has been a hard year for us. A lot of pain, a lot of boredom, but I have been silently terrified that the worst was yet to come, and now, people... I'm afraid it has. And by the way, at this point, I should mention that a story about an asteroid the size of Mount Everest named Apophis that may possibly strike Earth in the year 2068 didn't make it into the news this week. Now, I don't want you to panic. There's a lot of time between now and 2068, but what I'm talking about is happening today, people. I hope you're sitting down. There, there's really no good way to say this, so I'm just going to rip off the Band-Aid and say it. Netflix is raising its prices. Oh, God! It's terrible! What are we going to do? Wait, wait. Netflix? Netflix? Netflix is raising its prices? All Netflix does is make really good shows and then cancel them after three seasons. Why is this terrible? 
Oh, okay, 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 fine, fine, fine. Fine. So yet another streaming service is raising its prices by a dollar or three dollars. Feel free to cancel it. There's a few dozen other streaming services where it came from, and sadly, I subscribe to all of them. Seriously, though, I get Netflix through T-Mobile, so for me, whatever. You know what it's like. You order a new phone and then wait by the door until it arrives, and then you tear open the box and reach in, and there she is. Beautiful. Wait. Why are there fingerprints on this? And that's exactly what some Amazon customers might be wondering about their brand new Moto Razr phones. It seems that Razr phones ordered from Amazon are being unboxed, the display is closed, and then it's resealed and shipped in an effort to better protect the screen during shipping. Included is a note that explains what happened to let users know if there are fingerprints on the phone, it's okay and here's why. Now. Needless to say, that's fairly anticlimactic to open your phone box only to find out that it's already been opened. I experienced a similar thing when the dude at the T-Mobile store opened today's review phone. It was not awesome. Anyway, I get what Amazon is doing, and I get why Amazon is doing it, because, you know, they'll be the ones having to deal with the returns. But even so, this is really not cool, Amazon. Good news for Huawei this week, it seems the U.S. is softening its stance on the phone maker, authorizing a few parts makers to start doing business with Huawei again, as long as those parts are not related to Huawei's 5G business. And this is where things get a little fuzzy, because I couldn't really tell whether that meant 5G phones, or just 5G infrastructure, or both. Regardless, Huawei is allowed to get some balls rolling again. Curiously, Google, which has nothing to do with 5G infrastructure, is still not allowed, or it's just not doing business with them still. But then again, Google has its own mess with the U.S. government to figure out, so who even knows what's going on at that point? But honestly, Google is arguably what's holding back Huawei the most, at least in my book. Of course, you can't actually put an operating system on a phone if you don't have the phone parts to assemble, so maybe this is a baby step sort of situation. Regardless, for whatever reason, or maybe for no reason at all, this is the White House we're talking about after all, good things are happening for Huawei, which is good news for the phone industry because Huawei makes some really baller phones. Those phones can't really do anything without Google, but they are really nice aside from the fact that they're, you know, basically pretty paperweights. And finally, Starlink, SpaceX's satellite-based internet service, is rolling out public betas, which is exciting. Unfortunately, you have to live above the 44th parallel to subscribe to it, which is about two degrees too far north for Chicago. Even more unfortunate is the pricing. $99 per month with a $4.99 upfront equipment charge, and that's $499, not $4.99, by the way. Now, don't get me wrong. For someone living out in the sticks with basically no internet, $99 per month kind of seems reasonable. But in urban areas... Uh, that's not really going to fly because most urban areas have more than one provider, which helps keep costs down. Add to that part of T-Mobile's announcement this week that it's developing a 5G-based home internet, and, well, $99 just seems a bit steep. But then again, this is coming from someone who literally has, like, four options for internet service. Now, does that mean I approve of Elon Musk gouging people who have no other choice? No. And by the way, this is officially being called the, quote, better-than-nothing beta, which means... Yeah, the people signing up for this probably have no other choice. 
I mean, I guess I won't grouse too much if this is too far north for me to try it, even if it wasn't. My current service costs half that anyway. It's just nice to see Starlink start to actually make money these days, so go Elon, I guess. We've got merch! That's right, the Benefit of a Doubt podcast has official merchandise, so now you can fly your fandom flag. We've got t-shirts, coffee mugs, and stickers all waiting to be shipped to your door, and you can buy them right now, today. These t-shirts will be on a limited run, so grab them while you can and join the hashtag friendwithbenefit movement. Just go to benefitofadoubt.com support and click on the Teespring logo. That's benefitofadoubt.com support and click on the Teespring logo. Once there, you can grab a t-shirt, a coffee mug, or a sticker and show your support for the show. So head on over to Teespring and pick up some merch today. Plus, there are more great options for helping me out at benefitofadowd.com support. That's benefitofadowd.com support. You'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options all wrapped up in a neat little package. I hope you visit. I hope you don some merch. And as always, I thank you for listening. So before we get too deep here, I should preface this review by saying I'm not sure I can really accurately call this a full review or not. And the reason for that is that this phone is a fairly significant one in 2020, and I'm frankly not positive I've spent enough time with it to give it a full opinion. It would also help if I had a damn case for the thing, but that's a different conversation. What I can tell you is I absolutely do have opinions on this phone, and a lot of them are pretty good. So let's just go ahead and get right to it. This is my mostly full review, but I reserved a right to revisit this in the future, of the Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition. Normally, I like to start off a review by looking at the hardware, and I will. It's very nice, by the way, but before I do that, I feel like I need to provide some context regarding this phone. The Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition is... It's not really for fans, or maybe it kind of is. I, I don't mean to say that it's bad, absolutely not, far from it. But I'm going to suggest that fans of the Samsung Galaxy line of phones have already bought the S20, or the S20 Plus, or maybe even the Ultra. Remember, the Fan Edition name has really only gone on to one other Samsung phone, and that was the Note 7 Fan Edition. Well, actually, it was called the Note Fan Edition, but yeah, it was that Note 7. The refurbished Note 7s that Samsung fixed and then resold to the Korean market only. So, this Fan Edition is quite a different animal. Samsung focused on keeping only the features that, air quotes, fans want, but don't want to spend $1,000 to get. These features include a 120Hz display, IP68 water resistance, killer cameras, and great battery life. Where it cuts corners includes the periscope camera lens, the glass sandwich finish, and that's 100% pure grade glastic on the back of this phone. And they also cut the price by about 50%, which is a good trade-off if you ask me. Basically, this is the Samsung Galaxy S20e, but available in the fall and not the spring. I'm not sure why Samsung went with Fan Edition, but here we are, so let's get into it. 
The phone is a slippery beast, which has made the last two weeks carrying this phone without a case when the weather is starting to get cold and my hands are starting to get numb quite harrowing. But I have managed so far. This phone has a 6.5 inch Super AMOLED 120Hz display, a Snapdragon 865 processor, and 128GB of onboard storage. There's a 4500mAh battery and a triple camera setup on the back with a camera bump so big it shows up on topographical maps. This phone has no headphone jack and a single downward firing speaker. So let's start off by talking about that 120 hertz display. It is by far, without a doubt, the most overrated piece of technology I have ever laid eyes on, literally. With so many reviewers going crazy for 90 and 120 hertz displays, well, actually, that's really not true. What is true is that reviewers have constantly dinged phones for not having a 120 hertz screen. And so many others are all like, gosh, Buffy, now that I've had a 120 hertz screen, I can't even imagine using 60 hertz displays again. <laughs> oh, it's your serve, Buffy. And in my world, that's almost worse. Now, granted, I'm on the wrong side of 40 and my eyes are not awesome, but I can't tell the difference between a 60 hertz screen and a 120 hertz screen, except maybe that the 120 hertz screen is harder to scroll, like it doesn't move as far when I flick it. Maybe I'm just old and I can't really tell. No, that's not true either. I can see the difference between them. I. <laughs> I just don't give a crap. So let that be a lesson to you folks. Going forward, if I'm working with a 90 or 120 hertz screen, plan on me not mentioning it. But let's not move on from the screen just yet, because in addition to the 120 hertz display, which is overrated, Samsung needs to do something about touch sensitivity of its screens. I said before I'm on the wrong side of 40 and well, I'm also on the wrong side of 250 pounds, and my fat sausage fingers are phantom touching all over this biatch. And honestly, I'd hope that the flat screen on this phone would alleviate that, at least partially. Not the case. And speaking of cases, this is the main reason why I've been craving a case for this phone, to stop my fat sausage fingers from accidentally touching the screen. Frankly, this phone for me is a two-handed phone. One to hold the phone, the other one to navigate it. Other than those two gripes, I really have nothing bad to say about the hardware. There's no headphone jack, but this phone costs more than $500, so that's not really surprising. Not to mention, I don't even really notice the lack of headphone jack anymore. I use Bluetooth all the time, for better or for worse. And frankly, sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. It just is what it is, and I admire Samsung's courage, except no, I don't. The Glastic back is plastic and slippery, which I guess I really don't mind. I like a good polycarbonate body, and I frankly wish more phones would do it. The matte finish on the back gives the phone a nice look. I have the blue one, by the way, which I'm sure has a fancy PR name, but I'm just going to call it blue. I have found the fingerprint sensor to be... Eh decent, which is as high a praise as I've ever given a fingerprint reader that's underneath the screen. You have to get used to how the fingerprint sensor behaves. You need to touch it and then release it like half a second before you think you need to release it for the sensor to actually work. It's probably the best underscreen fingerprint sensor I've used thus far, but honestly, it's a pretty low bar. I should also mention that this phone is a 5G phone, for what it's worth. I used my T-Mobile SIM card, and indeed, this is a T-Mobile branded phone since I had to buy it. Samsung, my DMs are open, just saying. Network performance is just fine. 5G works, kind of, as much as 5G ever works, so there's that. Let's move on to software.
One UI is still a nice version of Samsung's UI. One UI brought the concept of moving most of the interactive space to the bottom of the phone, which is a nice idea. Samsung's skin is fine. It's nothing spectacular, but Samsung is definitely making its presence felt. This is not a stock Android build at all. Swiping up or down on the screen brings up your app drawer, which is a horizontal scroller, and I'm generally not a fan of horizontal scrollers because there's no easy way to jump from the Amazon app to the YouTube app. I'm obviously referring to apps in alphabetical order. With 150 apps that I have in my phone, I've got nine pages of apps to scroll through to get from A to Z, and that could be really annoying. Samsung doesn't offer any kind of recent apps or predictive app choices, which just makes the whole thing that much more annoying. Samsung does have its Bixby-powered dumb news feed off to the left, where Google Feed should always be. In fact, I found myself accidentally swiping to the left looking for the feed before realizing, damn it, Samsung doesn't have that. Instead, you get this Bixby feed, and yes, Samsung is still pushing Bixby for some damn reason. Even the power button is now a Bixby button, which led to a very frustrating sequence where I actually had to Google how to turn off my damn phone. Because pushing and holding the power button just summons stupid Bixby. Now, before you judge, like... How could he not know that? I haven't used a Samsung phone in literal years, and the last time I used a Samsung phone, the power button was a power button. Putting power controls in the notification shade actually does make a lot of sense, but you have a power button, Samsung. Use it. Samsung also has a smart pop-up view of apps that puts notifications into little chat head bubbles, which, when pressed upon, opens a small version of the app to show you what's up, and that small version floats on top of the whatever you have going on on the screen. It's neat, but it can also get annoying when you're trying to game and you get an email. There's no way to dismiss the bubble without opening the mini-app and then closing it right away. And if I didn't game so much on my phones, I actually would have kept that on, but I do, so I don't. I continued using gestures on the Samsung phone, which is so far the least accommodating phone I've used gestures on so far. They work fine, but swiping up on the screen often brought me to the app drawer when I actually wanted to go to multitasking. Overall, I worry that Samsung might be Samsunging it up again and throwing in features and UI decisions that fly in the face of Android rather than working with the operating system. We're not at full touch whiz yet, but I see more and more traces of it with every generation. Tread softly, Samsung, for you tread on our dreams. Battery life on this phone is quite good. Most nights I went to bed with between 15 and 20% left in the tank. Some days I pushed the phone harder than others, but it wasn't strange for me to push around 5 hours of screen on time. This is definitely a one-day phone. Make sure to plug it in every night for sure, though it will get you through a long day of 5G and traveling. As for performance, well, it's basically top of the line. It's a Snapdragon 865 processor, which means it can handle pretty much anything that you throw at it. The Samsung Galaxy S20 FE was the phone I really started to do some video editing on, due mostly to the fact that I launched a TikTok channel while I was using it. So I got to play with Premiere Rush and Cyberlink PowerDirector on here, and they both run great. I'm not quite to the point where I can run video output tests or see how fast a phone can produce a 4K video, but I'm working on getting there. After the camera overhaul is done, that's next in line, which makes this a great place to start talking about the camera and once again you will see photo samples on our youtube channel so be sure to check that out 
The Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition is the entry-level version of Samsung's flagship line. Think of it like the Samsung Galaxy S10e from last year. Indeed, along with some physical alterations to this phone, the glastic back, the lower resolution screen, so too did Samsung downgrade the cameras, but honestly, not by a lot. I took a lot, a lot of sample photos with this phone, and I think I could arguably say that this is the best camera phone I have used this year. That being said, the iPhone 12 Pro is winging its way to me as we speak, so let's not get ahead of ourselves here, right? But the three cameras in the back impress, that is for sure. So let's get to them. First of all, these three cameras are very, very good. Yes, Samsung overly warms and sharpens pretty much everything, but the results are impressive and not just social media good, like big screen good too. But everything is not perfect, so we're going to get right into it. Your typical flower shots are first, and I'll be including trees in this area because it's fall and trees are pretty now. The first thing you'll notice is that the shots of the main camera tend to be warmer than on the ultra-wide. Everything on the ultra-wide is just a bit, you know, paler. But I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing, because first, it's really hard to tell at a glance unless you're pixel peeping, but it is noticeable, so I need to mention it. There's also some loss of detail, but not really a whole lot. There's no predominant fisheye effect. It's just a couple of good quality sensors. The same goes for telephoto, particularly in shots of trees with leaves. The telephoto really catches the detail of the leaves against the sky, so it's all really well done. I'll be interested to see how this telephoto performs in situations where kids are performing, assuming that ever happens again, ever. Speaking of kids performing, let's start with the old action shots. Now, before you ask why are all my action shots of my daughter on the trampoline, I'll just tell you, it's because she's the only one around the house that actually does anything actioning. It's usually on the trampoline. Just move on. Oh, wait, here's a dog running. That's nice. So while it's true that my action shots were mostly captured in burst mode, which is not at all intuitive to use, by the way, I really had to pick and choose the best ones to show you. There were others where details got fuzzy or just plain lost, but backflips are fast, man. But the photos I examined show you that a good action shot is possible. This camera can pick out the details, like hair or moving limbs, and you can get some really good results. I just wish Samsung could figure out a good way to do burst mode. When you hold the shutter button in camera mode, it starts capturing video, and I suppose that's valuable, but... Like, the entire phone industry has been training people how to take burst shots for like 10 years now, and Samsung's all like, nah, just do it this way. So let's talk about the zoom. The zoom on this camera can go up to 30x, and I'm sure it will absolutely surprise no one when I say you probably shouldn't do that. A photo of my family taken from hundreds of feet away does allow me to recognize them, which in itself is very impressive. But the photo is not one for the wallet. The photos at 30X are chunky and blocky. What I will say is that I took some of the best 30X photos that I've ever taken, but folks, the best piece of garbage is still a piece of garbage. I would max out this camera at 10x, and that's only if you're desperate. Now, one thing that the camera app does when you go into 30x zoom is it shows you where in the viewfinder your 30x zoom is actually pointing. Like, it'll show you a wider view of the shot with a little square saying, here's where you're aiming right now, which is nice because it allows you to quickly find your subjects. But still, don't do it. Night shots when the lights go down, those are always the true test of a camera, and in this case, 
It's actually not bad. Yes, you get a ridiculous amount of lens flare from lights in the foreground, and yes, you get loss of detail with the zoom lens, but overall, I've seen a lot worse. The telephoto in particular seemed to have trouble finding a focus point, but overall, these photos could have turned out much worse. So let's turn our sights to the selfie cam and yeah, it's, it's not very good. Like during the day in good light, it's fine, but at night, Jesus Christ, it's a hot mess. Like it's okay if you can find some light to light yourself from the front, but if you have light behind you, don't even bother. Even from the front, selfies are soft and kind of gross. That being said, portrait mode on selfies and on the main camera is very good, including the benefit of a doubt patented head propped on your hand shot. When you get multiple subjects in the shot, the portrait mode goes a little confused, but overall I have very few complaints about this. So let's dive into video. Overall, video on this phone is better than most of what I've seen, but it's still not great. Both from the selfie camera and the main camera, I'd like to see more stabilization, whether it's optical or electronic. Plus, I noticed more than a few dropped frames during my review of the footage I took. At night, the video is really not that great at all. It's choppy and the telephoto lens has a lot of trouble focusing on really anything. But nighttime is the most challenging time for a camera to get things right, so I can't penalize the cameras too much in this category. One of my old standby favorites on the camera is super slow mode, and yes, these videos are still pretty awesome. The detail that is kept on the slow mode is amazing, and I just love these videos. And by the way, a new favorite of mine might just be time-lapse and hyper-lapse. I could have some real fun with these, and I'm happy to report that this phone does a great job with those. So where does that all leave us? Well, they're the best cameras that I've used this year so far with this set of testing protocols, which is an admittedly low bar and a lot of caveats. But honestly, I really enjoy the products of these cameras as much or more than the Pixel 4a, which is probably why this is going to be my new standby camera phone. And that is a big deal. So that takes us over into our U review segment, and this week I'm very thankful for a contributor from the past, Haim, who was able to send a single U review question, and that's mostly my fault because I kind of forgot to tell you that I was going to be reviewing the darn phone until last week. All's forgiven because Haim is here to save the day with the question, is the S20 FE worth it if you can get the more premium S20 for the same price used? That's a very good question, and here's the thing. I have never used the Samsung Galaxy S20, S20 Plus, or S20 Ultra, so it's hard for me to say decisively one way or the other. I honestly think that the main thing you'd be missing out on would be that super periscope lens of the S20 Ultra. But that's really the only thing I could imagine missing out on. Everything else is here. The large screen, the overrated 120Hz screen, the battery, the overrated 5G, all of it. You miss out on a little bit of RAM and a little bit of camera. And I think the difference in cameras would honestly be mostly negligible. I don't recall how the selfie cameras were on the S20, so there might be something there if you take a lot of selfies, because seriously, the selfie camera on this phone is just ass. Now, the main reason I tend to not buy used phones is because of battery life. You just don't know what a phone has been put through, so it's hard to gauge what a phone's battery life would be. With the Samsung Galaxy FE, the battery life is solid, and you'd be buying it new. If you really want the periscope lens, I frankly don't blame you, then go ahead and get the used phone. But if you don't care about that, or if my video of camera samples convince you that the cameras on this phone are as baller as I think they are, 
then go ahead and get the FE, hands down. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. I know I spent a lot of time in this review complaining, which is really nitpicking, actually, about a touchy screen and some software improvements I'd like to see. But overall, I'm really digging this phone, and I'll probably keep it as my daily driver for a while. Yes, I love the Pixel 4a, so I might honestly carry both. They both have amazing cameras, but the Galaxy has the power I need to edit videos on the fly and post them on the fly, and that's very valuable, especially with an up-and-coming TikTok channel. Please follow me. If you made me pick just one or the other, I'm inclined to think that I would probably pick the Galaxy, but I honestly can't say that it wouldn't be just because it's a shiny new toy. I might pick the Galaxy S20 FE, but I would probably miss the 4A after the honeymoon period was over. All told, this phone is tremendous value at a $700 price tag, so if you can get it cheaper, do it. Don't hesitate. I know T-Mobile is running a thing where if you switch to T-Mobile, you get four lines, and they'll give you four of these phones for free, and that's a steal. And T-Mobile is solid, BT-dubs. Bottom line, I love this phone, and I'm very happy with this phone, and the compromises that it makes to get to that price were exactly the right compromises to make. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Samsung for not sending me a review unit and T-Mobile for happily selling me one. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work. But most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>